The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, this is the third week in our three-week series on the ten paramis or paramitas. These are the qualities that we perfect on our way to awakening, on our way to Buddhahood. And we started the first week with generosity, morality, and renunciation. And then last week we talked about wisdom, energy, and patience. And now today we'll talk about the last four, which are truthfulness, determination, metta or loving-kindness, and equanimity. And hopefully you have been practicing with some or all of these over the weeks. That's the idea, that we talk about them here, and then you can go out from here and make them a part of your practice. Because they all can be challenging. And our practice is just that. It's a practice. We don't expect ourselves to be perfect. We don't expect ourselves to be um, undyingly generous right off the bat. All of these things take practice, and they take thought, careful thought. And part of what I see my role as being is offering maybe a broad perspective of how we can view these qualities so that it's not just, like with truthfulness, it's not just telling the truth. (laughs) Hopefully most of us do that most of the time. But looking in a broader way at what does truthfulness mean? How can we see it more broadly and how can we work with it? There are times for all of us that we get challenged by truthfulness. The best of us that um, try to be as honest as we can and live honest lives get challenged from time to time in situations. Uh, What is the best way to handle this? And is my truthfulness or my honesty um, going to be helpful or perhaps harmful? Strictly speaking, the Buddha's teachings are to be honest in all situations. And that's a wonderful ideal. And then we have to work with it. (laughs) Because sometimes we get caught. You know, we get asked a direct question. And before we can think about how we can (laughs) come around the side or not answer it directly, we find ourselves saying what we think the other person wants to hear or what we think is the nicest thing. And it may not be honest. (laughs) And so we have to practice. We have to think about situations 
so that when we're in that position, something more naturally comes to our minds. And there may be times, hopefully very few, but there may be instances where not telling the truth is the most helpful. You know, the, the example is always given of, of during World War II, you know, uh, a Nazi soldier comes to your door and asks if so-and-so is there or if you're hiding anybody, and you say no. And, of course, they're upstairs in your attic. I think most of us would think that um, protecting somebody was more important than being strictly honest. But there could also be ways, if we had thought about it and practiced, that we could avoid a direct answer. I don't have a particular answer in mind, but... um, Thinking about it and practicing with it allows us uh, to have a broader repertoire, (laughs) a broader breadth of how we can answer. I would like to suggest that maybe more importantly, we are honest with ourselves, that we see ourselves as clearly, realistically, and honestly as we can. And that means not hiding from ourselves, not denying things about ourselves, not pretending we're one way when actually we're not, we're another way. Not turning away from ourselves, not ignoring challenges that we may have. We all have challenges. We all have things to work with. And our practice is about meeting them, seeing them clearly. Because if we're not seeing ourselves clearly, if we're denying certain aspects of ourselves, guess what? (laughs) They pop out. We tend to act from them unconsciously. And then we find ourselves saying things or doing things that really are unskillful and we didn't mean to do. But it's coming from a place that has not been seen, has not been recognized, acknowledged, accepted, and held, held with compassion. So this is not necessarily an easy thing to do. And it's not something that we do once, (laughs) but we do repeatedly. We do over and over again. Every time we have a reaction... Every time we say something, perhaps, that surprises us. Oh, we take a moment to reflect, to look back and see, hmm, where did that come from? What was that about? What was I protecting? Or what was I not seeing? What is the fear or the resentment or the grief or whatever it might be? Because the more we see clearly, then the less likely we are to act in an unskillful or a hurtful way. 
I'd like to suggest also that it's important that we search for truth. And what I mean by that is very similar to what the Buddha taught, that we don't just accept things because somebody says it. A friend, a parent, a teacher, somebody we respect. But we check it out for ourselves. The media. (laughs) We hear a lot of things in the media that, upon scrutiny, turn out not to be true or to be a piece of the truth, a slant on the truth, but not the entire truth. And so being willing to, to look a little bit, to not just swallow whatever we hear, but to look more closely, maybe uh, search other sources so that we get a broader vision of what is truthful. Buddhism suggests that there are many paths to the truth. It holds that there is an ultimate truth. Not that Buddhism has a corner on. (laughs) A universal truth. The reality of life. The truth of things as they are. But that there are many paths to reach that truth. And for us here, perhaps we have found that Buddhist practice is the most useful path. But for other people, it may be a different path, a different religious path, a different philosophical path, a different way of practice, many practices. And as Buddhas, we honor all those paths. They may not be appropriate for us. We may not even like some of the things. But nevertheless, we honor that they are valuable, worthy paths, the same as ours. This is something that the Dalai Lama has talked quite a lot about. He's very um, interested and supportive of interfaith kinds of work and, in fact, wrote a wonderful book on uh, a description of, of all the major world's religions and from such a positive perspective, it was, it was really very, um, very good to read. So recognizing that all paths have value and therefore we can respect and honor all paths. The truth can be very complex, as we all know, right? It's very rarely black or white. The truth usually has many facets, many perspectives, and sometimes it might be just a collection of many perspectives. There's not a truth, but a collection of many different perspectives. And I think we can caution ourselves against being fooled by the truth. Um, If someone is claiming to have the truth, 
be wary. <laughs> Check it out. Because the truth is probably larger than that. And we can do our best to live the truth. Be truth. Be as truthful, as honest, as clear as we can be in everything that we do. So again, it's a practice. It's not just black or white, it's a practice. So, are there comments, questions? Truthfulness is a big one to practice with. And I encourage you over the next week to be aware of truthfulness. Be aware, perhaps, when you are inclined not to be truthful or not to recognize the truth, not with judgment, not with criticism, just being aware. That's our practice, to be aware, to pay attention. You've got the microphone. Good morning, everybody. Um, I find I don't always know what's the truth for me. I get asked a question uh, sometimes from, if you will, a difficult person. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I usually ask for some time to process that. I find that my immediate reaction can be hurtful. (laughs) And it's not always intended the way I I meant it. (laughs) And, of course, once I say it, it's out and done, and it's like, oh, can I edit that? (laughs) But I do need time to process things. Is that... It seems to be helpful for me. Yes, yeah, I think this that's... This is a very important subject. Uh, of course, I have to figure out what the truth is to me. And, right. And by processing it, taking a little time, I usually come back with a softer, gentler truth. Um, yes. Is, that what, we're, is that, that what we're trying to achieve? I mean, it's I nice to hear wisdom. you say that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have another program that I do practice in it, and that's it's like if you you know it's better sometimes to process that. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, I think that is wisdom. Often, to um, to take some time to not answer right away, but take some time to process it, to think about it, to be clear about how you are feeling and how you want to respond. And I think most people really respect that. Yeah, thank you. Do you want to pass it to this lady? Yeah, I think I'm a little confused about uh, what you said, that we have to be honest even though it's hurtful or harmful. 
uh, the honest no. answer can be very harmful or hurtful to the person? I think we have to use some wisdom and know whether our honesty is going to be helpful or harmful. And if it's harmful, find a way not to say it. Because creating more harm, creating more suffering, is not going to help anyone. And that's why I say we have to practice, we have to think about it. Because sometimes, um, our, as this gentleman was saying, our first response um, can be harsh or can be unskillful, can be unhelpful. And we don't want to lie or misrepresent the truth. But if we can find a way, um, you know, a simple example that often comes up is somebody asks you directly, do you like my new dress? Do you like my new hair? Do you like, you know... The dinner. The dinner. (laughs) And... Perhaps there were things about it we didn't like, but we really don't want to say that to our hostess, right? And so we can find ways of saying what we did like, what we did enjoy. That color really looks good on you. Or um, it's really nice to see uh, your hair a little longer, a little shorter, a little... (laughs) grayer, a little whatever, um, that is not being dishonest, but is not brutally honest. So we're not causing harm or causing hurt. Yes. Because uh, much like the Hippocratic Oath, you know, in in Buddhist practice, bottom line is do no harm. (laughs) Above all, do no harm. And so if... Being truthful, our truth, (laughs) is going to be hurtful, then maybe step back and be careful about that. Okay? There's a lot we could say, but we have three more qualities, so I think I'd better move on. And maybe we can talk a little bit afterwards. So the next one, the eighth of the ten paramis, paramitas, is determination. Uh, or resolution. It's often talked about as resolve. And you'll hear that we actually have talked about this in other qualities, such as patience. Determination or resolve is that, that intention, that strong intention to do something, to follow something, to see clearly to uh, practice every day, uh, whatever it is. But it's, it's with effort. It is um, a strong intention with perseverance and maybe dedication. So it's not just, oh yeah, that would be nice, I think I'd like to do that. It is, I intend to do that. I will do that. And then there's energy behind it, and there's patience, because it might take time. 
It might um, be a practice over time. And our intention is to do it, to persevere, to continue doing it. This weekend, Sunday, um, as some of you may know, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is the translator of many of our suttas into English, was out here for the Buddhist Global Relief Walk to Feed the Hungry in San Jose. It was quite an honor, very nice to have him with us. And when we stopped for lunch, he spoke a little bit about how he came to create Buddhist Global Relief a few years ago. And he talked about, he lived in Sri Lanka for 24 years, and he talked about the first monastery that he went to was in a very poor area, and it was a very poor monastery. But as is the tradition in Asia, the surrounding people, the lay community, was very supportive of the monks and nuns and the monastery. And so they brought food for the monks every day. But he said in the morning it was very watery um, gruel or rice cereal. And in the afternoon, or noon, because they don't eat after uh, midday, it was uh, a light noodle and vegetables. And he was hungry. He was always hungry. It wasn't enough, you know, especially probably for an American used to a whole lot more food. And it was this way for two years. And he said he felt the hunger. The actual, you know, gnawing feeling of hunger went away. But he could feel it in his body. He could feel it in all the cells, that they weren't getting enough nourishment. After two years, he said, it improved. It got better. But that really stuck with me. For two years, he stayed there, even though it was very poor. And I I was really impressed with that kind of dedication and perseverance. I don't know him personally. Um, I don't know why he did uh, why he stayed there, but just the fact that that he did, he he persevered, he stayed with it for two years, not knowing, I would assume, that it was going to get better. It did, in fact, thank goodness. But um, but that is really determination. <laughs> that is really resolve. Whatever was going on for him, he was going to stick with it, no matter what. And whether you agree with it or not, you can certainly respect or have admiration for that kind of one-pointedness, that kind of determination. We can be committed to many things. We can be committed to a relationship that we're in. And that can mean that no matter what comes along, we stay with that commitment. We work it out. 
I recently spoke with someone for whom this was true. Someone in a committed relationship. And another relationship presented itself, or another person. It was very attractive. And this person was very aware of the attraction. It was both ways. And very clear that there was a commitment, and that commitment was not going to be broken. And in fact, this person was using, this was a practitioner, and using her mindfulness and the skills that she learned to see where that attraction was coming from deep within her. What was allowing or even bringing out that attraction? And so very skillfully dealing with what was going on with her and not acting it out. I was very impressed. That takes great awareness and great resolve, great dedication um, to the practice as well as to the relationship to explore that attraction and not act on it. Stay committed. That commitment was more valuable than a fleeting attraction. We can be committed to this path, the path of practice, the path of meditation, the practice of mindfulness. And no matter what obstacles come up, get thrown in our way, we stay the course. That doesn't mean that we might not stray, but we're committed. We come back. We keep coming back, just like to the breath. We keep coming back, no matter what might come up for us. We set a strong intention. And as we all know, sometimes we have competing intentions. And then our practice is to see that, to see the perhaps conflicting or competing intention and stay with our goal, stay with, with what our commitment is to, what our resolve is to. Sometimes the word imperturbability is used. <laughs> that we, we are committed like a mountain. And we don't let the winds of life blow us about. We stay committed. There's a lot of power in that. Like Margaret Mead suggested, when we commit to something, no matter how small or how seemingly impossible, when we make that clear commitment, it seems as if the whole universe lines up behind us. And you've probably had that experience. A lot of times, you know, oh yeah, we'd like to do that, we'd like to do that. You know, it may or may not happen. But there are times when something becomes so clear to us, that's what we're going to do. And then don't you have the experience that things just fall into place? When there's that kind of resolve, that kind of commitment, then the universe gets it (laughs) and helps support us in that path. And, you know, I'm using this hand motion. Um, It can be a very fierce 
commitment, a very strong determination. Or it can be gentle. It can be very gentle. Nevertheless, very strong. Very, uh, there's a lot of commitment, a lot of intention and energy behind it. So maybe we have time for a comment or two. Uh-huh. Where's this? Green is on. Is that on? It's on. Um, I think of that as Manjushri. Yes, like, yeah, exactly. And, um, and that we're all like intuitive too. So it, maybe it's the universe deciding and we get it, not us, the universe <laughs> getting us. Anyways, I'm full of comments because I also thought Goethe said that, but Margaret Mead was like a childhood hero. So that was Margaret Mead. That's great to hear. And um, yeah, it feels to me like practice is learning to listen partly too. Absolutely. You know, and, then, and then yes, things do line up because we're in harmony. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I'm yes. really enjoying your talk. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I really like that. That maybe it's not so much that we decide. <laughs> I didn't make myself. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it, doesn't it? But it may not. It may not, in fact, be us. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> oh, what is it in our practice that avoids our dedication or commitment to becoming an unhealthy attachment. That is, we demand of ourselves, possibly, um, something in this practice and that has, that has negative consequences. You're looking at me as if I'm not making any sense. Let me try again. <laughs> I'm sure you're making perfect sense. I'm not sure what um, Can you give an example? Well, the, the, um, let me say this first. The, the word dedication has a sense for me, a connotation that um, there's sort of a totality of Commitment, I guess. Mm-hmm. I know I'm, mm-hmm. I'm using the same words over again, but um, I'll try this. I don't know if this is sort of an intellectual example rather than a experiential one, but um, if I'm dedicated to truthfulness and honesty as we were discussing a bit ago, I might be, I might respond to something in a brutally honest mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. because I am dedicated mm. to honesty. Got it. So what's, and, and since the Buddha was suggesting a middle way, <laughs> what's the balance act? What's the balance with that that prevents or that would prevent dedication right. from becoming detrimental right. mindfulness and wisdom yeah um, last week, I suggested that 
wisdom is, uh, pervades all of the paramis. I was away last week, sorry. <laughs> I missed you. <laughs> right. Now I'm in trouble. <laughs> yes. Um, so all of these things, we talk about them separately, but of course they're all interconnected, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, inter-R. <laughs> and it's said that wisdom pervades all of them. And so with anything, dedication, truthfulness, whatever it is, we, we do want to use our discriminating wisdom. And so I think we can certainly be dedicated to truthfulness and find skillful ways of being truthful. And that does take practice. It doesn't necessarily come automatically. And maybe the first step is to not speak (laughs) so that we don't tell an untruth, but we're not brutally honest, as you said, either. Until we learn ways of... I don't want to make it sound like we're not being honest, but I think we all realize there are skillful ways of being honest and unskillful ways. And we want to find ways that are skillful and and not through our dedication create more harm. I wonder if we could come up with some phrases, you know, for each other. Like, uh, it would help me if I could not answer that right now and take some time to think. I mean, I'm uh-huh. sure we all have uh-huh. some phrases that mm-hmm. would work that wouldn't be lying, that would be, uh, you know, I'd be afraid to speak to that right now. I need mm-hmm. to check in with myself. Or mm-hmm. so many different ways as you're suggesting exactly. that we could say that without lying and actually really speak to the truth within us, which is... Yes, just as this gentleman was saying. I need some time to process that. Let me think about it. Somebody asked me directly the other day if, if I liked her hair. I commented, your hair is so much longer. And she said, do you like it? And she said, be honest. This is a good friend, you know, I've had for a long time. Well, the truth was, and that's why I said, I don't know. (laughs) right now it's just different I'm used to you with really short hair and this is longer I have to get used to it that was easy because it was absolutely the truth (laughs) you know Um, it wasn't a matter of liking or not liking it was just a matter it was different so that was an easy easy one they're not always quite so easy Yeah, but I think you're right Um, thinking of some Phrases that we can easily use that, um, that, that we don't have to answer immediately. And that's true for many things, many, many things. We would do better if we took time before we answered rather than answering right away. Yeah. Okay, so let me move on. The ninth quality as you may have guessed, is metta, or loving-kindness. This is the practice that we did at the end of our sitting. It's a complementary practice to mindfulness. Hopefully many of you are familiar with it. It is an incredibly powerful 
practice. It's an incredibly lovely practice. I don't think I ever do metta, even ten minutes, as we did, that I don't feel better. <laughs> Somehow, just, just thinking about wishing well to a difficult person in my life, wishing well to a neutral person, expanding that to every living thing, (laughs) being, we say, but it can be um, plants and, you know, all of the earth that's alive. It's heart-opening. It really, um, it feels good. Sometimes we say that that loving kindness is the Buddhist way of love. We don't talk about love per se so much in Buddhism, simply because the word is so loaded. It has so many different connotations, and it's used sometimes so carelessly. So in Buddhist practice, we generally use either loving kindness or compassion. And of course, both loving kindness and compassion are two of the four Brahma Viharas. The third is um, empathetic joy, and the fourth is equanimity, which we'll talk about next. These are heart-opening qualities, and qualities that we want to develop always, continuously, I think um, perhaps we never come to the end of developing loving-kindness or compassion. Just like with prayer, and and again, sometimes um, this is likened to prayer in other traditions, the difference is that with prayer, generally it's to a being, um, asking for something in um, in our practice it's it's opening our hearts it's putting out into the world into the universe our sense of loving kindness and caring and compassion sometimes doing loving-kindness practice will bring up the opposite emotion. And then people tend to think they're doing it wrong or be afraid, turn away from it, but actually it means it's working (laughs) because it's a purification practice as well. And if we're doing loving-kindness for someone that we have a lot of anger, resentment, fear, whatever, then if we start wishing them well, that's going to pull up all that negativity. And that's fine. That's what we want it to do. And so just knowing that, that that's okay, and accepting it, even meeting it with compassion, meeting it with openness and not being afraid of it. It is, it is working. It is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Um, I started to say, like with prayer, often people report that they feel the effects of loving kindness. 
sometimes people know that others are doing metta practice for them or someone they love. And it just, it feels so good. Um, Sometimes they don't know. And they will say that they felt it. There have been a couple of times in my life where um, difficult things have happened on a Wednesday. And Wednesday night is our San Jose group. And it has been so comforting for me to know that they will be doing metta for me. (laughs) They know what's going on and they will be doing metta. And that, that feels so good. Just to know that other people care about you, that they're thinking about you. And we did the formal practice this morning, but, you know, we can do metta anytime, anywhere. We can be walking down the street and just wish somebody well, somebody that looks pretty unhappy or, you know, won't look up at us or whatever. We can just say, may you be happy. May you be safe. Um... That's a good one to use on the freeway. <laughs> when, when somebody zooms across, instead of cussing them out or throwing the finger, we can say, may you arrive safely. Or I often say, may you not involve anybody else. <laughs> because it sure looks like that's what's going to happen. You know? Um, you know, we don't even always have to form the words in our mind. It can be just an attitude of caring or loving kindness, just acknowledging somebody. Um, When we develop that kind of spirit, that kind of open-heartedness, then it just exudes. And we may not actually form the words. Another time I like very much to use metta is when I hear a siren, an ambulance or a fire truck. And of course, I have no idea what is going on. And that can be such a helpless feeling. I know something's happened. I have no idea what it is or where or who's involved. And to just open my heart to just say, whatever's happening, I wish you well. (laughs) Uh, You know, may things go smoothly. May nobody be too seriously hurt or something like that. For me, it feels so much better than doing nothing. And it's important, I think, to say that doing metta or loving kindness is not weak. In fact, when we do it for a difficult person, it's quite courageous. It can take a lot of courage to wish well for somebody that we really don't care for, we really have a difficult time with. So I, I just want to suggest this book by Jack Cornfield, The Art of Forgiveness, Loving Kindness, and Peace. And notice the order Uh, Loving-kindness can involve forgiveness. Often it's difficult to do loving-kindness if we have not forgiven. 
And sometimes we begin the practice with forgiveness practice because it's difficult to open our hearts if we're holding on to resentment. So just a reminder that the Buddha suggested that loving kindness is the greatest protection that there is. And that we could search the entire world over and never find anyone more deserving of our loving kindness than ourselves. I'd like to add, nobody less either. (laughs) But he said, no one more deserving than ourselves. And he also said, since each and every person is so precious to themselves, let the self-respecting harm no other being. Recognizing that, that we're all precious to ourselves. We wouldn't want to hurt ourselves, so why would we hurt anybody else? And then the tenth quality, the last in any list, is equanimity. And equanimity is the fourth of the Brahma Viharas. It's the tenth in this list of paramis. Equanimity is a balance, a mind in balance. It's an openness to all things. Again, it can be equated to the earth that accepts everything. Um, We pave over it. We spit on it. (laughs) We drill in it. We do all kinds of things and the earth accepts it all. It's that kind of openness, willingness to accept whatever life brings to us. Often it's stated in terms of karma. That is, that we are all heirs to our own actions. And that's not said in a blaming way or disparaging way, but as a way of acknowledging that I am not responsible for your happiness or for the results of your actions. I can be compassionate. I can be there. I can do whatever I can to help. But ultimately, you are responsible for the results of your actions. I am responsible for the results of my actions. There are many um, equanimity stories in Buddhist practice. One that comes to mind, it's a very powerful one, a teaching story of a... a young woman who becomes pregnant out of wedlock and disgraces her family. And what she does is, when the baby is born, takes the baby to the monastery, the nearest monastery, and says to the monk that answers the door, here, this is your baby. And she tells the village, the community, that 
It is this monk's baby. And the monk accepts the baby and takes care of it, loves it, and the baby thrives and grows. And sometime later, a year or something later, the woman is so remorseful for what she has done that she goes back to the monastery and tells the monk, you know, that I lied. I know it was not you, and I'd like my baby back. And the monk gives her the baby back. In real life, you can imagine that it would be much more complicated than, than that. But the point is the monk, who is willing to accept the blame, even though he knows he's not responsible. He takes in the baby and loves it and cares for it. And then when the mom comes back for the baby, gives the baby back, which we all know would be extremely difficult because even if you hadn't fathered it, if you had loved it and cared for it for a year, it would be very, very difficult to give back. But that's, that's the feeling of equanimity. And the important thing to remember about equanimity is that it is not indifference. It is not, oh well, who cares? Say lobby. I'm sorry? Whatever. Whatever, right. It's not whatever. <laughs> it is, um, Gil sometimes quotes T.S. Eliot as saying, uh, teach me to care and not to care. It is that kind of caring and not caring. So the monk cared enormously for the baby and took good care of it and was able to let it go when the time was right. And that's equanimity, that we care. We care so much that we're able to let go when it's time to let go. And of course, there always comes a time to let go because everything is impermanent and everything will change and there will be a time to let go. It's said that that equanimity uh, is not enlightenment, but it's very close. <laughs> it's, it's the last step, perhaps, before full enlightenment. That ability to uh, truly accept things as they are and to meet life on life's terms, not our terms, but life's terms. It takes a certain amount of fearlessness, certainly takes a lot of metta, loving-kindness, um, takes a lot of resolve, but equanimity is really a very peaceful state because it's a non-contentious state. There's no resisting or fighting with anything. It's just an open acceptance. So it's a very beautiful state, certainly one that I aspire to. And, um, and it is the tenth in the ten perfections, the ten qualities. So it's just about 11, but is there a comment or question? Yes. 
Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. I just like to uh, thank you very much. On your first uh, session, I think the topic uh, was generosity, mm-hmm. and it really uh, you said it doesn't necessarily mean giving money. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I had uh, if you go to Trader Joe's or Walgreens on, uh, in San Carlos. I think I had the attitude of, um, I know I'm not going to give any money because I've given here, here, and here, and I would not look at the person. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you said uh, sometimes some people would just appreciate a smile, and that really was wonderful, uh, just to acknowledge a person uh, is there. Yeah, you know whether you're going to give money, you can give. A smile, you can give um, a sense of that's a person, mm-hmm. just like mm-hmm. I'm a person. Right. And I, I really appreciated that oh, very much. Good. Uh, good. So that was one of my takeaways that I really appreciated from Great. your lectures. Great. Thank you. That's a gift to so many people. Yeah. Yes, just to be acknowledged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Anybody else? Well, it's been a pleasure to be with you for three weeks. And I encourage you to practice with the paramis. Maybe pick one, one that's particularly challenging or interesting or whatever. Practice with it. And remember, not with judgment, not with criticism, just with mindfulness. Be aware. Be aware when generosity arises. Be aware whether you act on it or not. Be aware of what the feeling is, what the result is. Notice equanimity when it arises. Because there will be moments of equanimity. It may not last, but it will be there. So notice it. Notice it. It's very important to notice 